Let's go ahead and grab our, our, our drinks, our coffee, our seats, our Bibles, and also our uh, Grace Evangelism workbook, student workbook, if, if you would like to. Now you can obviously sit in the class and audit it, okay, and just in, enjoy um, the truth of it, but we'd also encourage you to apply also what you learn throughout these next seven weeks as we work through evangelism. Grace Evangelism series, which we're beginning today. So if you uh, want to, you can get these from the bookstore and work through it step by step with us. There is homework involved. There is homework and it is good, good homework for us to, to work through together. So I'd really encourage you to get one of these and work through these next seven weeks with us. But again, that is completely optional, okay? Um, and also, if you are wanting to be involved in other evangelistic outreaches that we're going to be doing and to be training for, you do have to complete what we are going through, okay? The homework and the assignments and the scenarios which, you, which you'll see and hear about, okay? So I'd encourage you to get this in our bookstore straight back there. And also a part of uh, completing the next seven weeks of this Grace Evangelism series that we're gonna be going through is to read What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. That book is also in the bookstore as well. So with that said, let's begin with prayer and then we're gonna jump right in to our lesson this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness towards us in Christ. Thank you for the fact that your grace is greater than all of our sin. Thank you for carrying us throughout this past week. Thank you for your tender mercies, uh, which we are lavished with, whether we realize it or not. Thank you for your patience towards us and for bringing us to this hour, this Lord's day. How sweet of a day it is, Lord, to hear of your grace in the lives of sinners who have been saved uh, by your sheer grace through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, for, Father, for the, the cool weather. Thank you for um, the opportunity to worship the one true and living God. I pray, Lord, that we would be careful to receive what we're about to hear and that we'd be careful to apply it by faith and to not merely be hearers of the word but to be doers of the word all because of your loving kindness towards undeserving people like us. Would you be glorified in this hour? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, lesson one is the foundations of biblical evangelism. The foundations of biblical evangelism. So let me ask, what comes to mind when you hear the word evangelism? Does the thought of approaching someone with the gospel stir up uh, feelings of anxiety or embarrassment? Does the thought of confronting someone cause fear? Are you simply shy and timid? Are you unsure of what to say? Uh, do you regret opportunities that have passed by? Now, whether you are feel, fearful or simply needing to refine your approach to evangelism, Grace Evangelism, this series is designed for you and I. This study will be encouraging and exciting as we examine the scriptures together to define biblical evangelism. Many evangelistic methods, as you 
all know in programs, they try to minimize the amount of gospel truth, hoping to accomplish more by doing less. And that is not biblical. It's not biblical evangelism. Christ commissioned believers to teach all that he commanded. Remember Matthew 28 verse 20. And by definition, the gospel is the entire good news and he, that he came to proclaim. So no man-made gimmicks or manipulative approaches will move people to repent. I don't know about you, but I am firsthand guilty of understanding uh, that truth. Our responsibility instead is to glorify God by proclaiming Christ crucified and leave the results to God. Grace evangelism will help you move toward fluency with the saving message of Christ while equipping you to proclaim a clear gospel message. If you are faithful to attend these classes and work hard to complete the assignments, your ability to articulate the gospel message will increase significantly. And the impact of the gospel in your own life and my own life will be profound. So we begin our class with the biblical foundations of evangelism and here we will answer the question, what makes biblical evangelism distinct from all other approaches? So we'll examine four aspects of evangelism. The mission, what is God's ultimate ultimate purpose for evangelism, the motivation, what motivates believers to evangelize, the message, what characterizes a biblical gospel presentation, and the method, what are the guiding principles of presenting the message. So number one, the mission. God's ultimate purpose for evangelism is to glorify himself to glorify himself. Letter A, God's ultimate purpose in everything is to glorify himself. Isaiah 42, eight, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 48, nine and 11, for the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off for my own sake. For my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Psalm 106, seven to eight. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea and at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Uh, Just even there in Psalm 106, the psalmist is praising God for the mighty deeds that he performed for the nation of Israel. All that he has done is built up in Psalm 106. He wants to do all these things. Yes, he even wanted to, to, to judge Egypt for their cruelty, but ultimately the psalmist says, God is God centered. He saved them for the sake of his name. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 23. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, (laughs) O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, 
which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. So Ezekiel 36 here, Israel has sinned against God by refusing to worship God in purity. And so he is about to deliver them into the Babylonian exile. But before he does, he promises that he'll restore them for the sake of his name. This brings us to letter B, salvation accomplishes God's mission to bring himself glory. Salvation accomplishes God's mission to bring himself glory. In Isaiah 43, God has already said in verse seven that he has created his people for his glory. But then he says in Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. The purpose of salvation is for God's sake, for his glory. 1 John 2, 12, I am writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. And perhaps this is familiar to, to some of us here, but in Ephesians chapter one, Paul says that every aspect of our salvation is to the praise of his glorious grace. And it says that multiple times in the first half of Ephesians 1. It's to the praise of his glory. And then in the next chapter, in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7, it says, but God made us alive together with Christ. And in verse 7, the reason is given, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that he might trumpet forth the praises of his name, of his grace. Now, um, some of you may have heard a, a very man-centered version of Christianity. I'm sure probably every single one of us here uh, have heard that. Some of you have heard the gospel presented as, as if God is just this lonely grandfather up in heaven who desperately wants to have a relationship with with you and that he can't live without you and so he's done everything he can do to be with, with you. Some of you have heard the gospel presented as if God's main goal was to show us how valuable we are. They say things like, uh, he gave up what was most precious to him, his son, so that he could have you. Now, <laughs> um, those kinds of things do have some truth in them, do they not? For example, God does demonstrate his love in sending his son, right? God does desire to be in a relationship with us as his creatures. But what these texts teach us is that God's most ultimate purpose in saving sinners is not to make much of us, but to make much of himself and to bring sinners into the freedom the freedom of enjoying making much of him forever. That's our calling, to make much of him forever. Don't you love it, that line that we sing? Free to love and free to serve. You've been freed, freed 
unto the one true and living God to worship him forever. Why? Because he is the most lovely, beautiful, satisfying, thrilling person anyone could ever see and know and enjoy. I tell that to my kids often. I say, you know, if you're, if you're bored when you hear certain magnificent truths about God, if we are at all, the problem ain't with God and his word. The problem is with us. We're the bored, we're, we're the boring ones, not God. He's the most beautiful, he's the most satisfying. And because he loves us, because he wants to give us what is lovely and what satisfies our souls, he labors in all that he does to put his glory on display. And this means that salvation is about making worshipers. Salvation is about making worshipers. Salvation is God turning idolaters into true worshipers of the one true and living God to quote 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. So this brings us to letter C, evangelism exists because worship does not. Evangelism exists because worship does not. There's gonna be no evangelism in heaven, <laughs> right? <coughs> John 4:23. but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, Jesus is not teaching a location of worship there, but rather he's teaching the proper expression of the sinner, which was true worship. And this is what God is after. Jesus says that God seeks those who will worship in spirit and truth. Evangelism is of utmost necessity wherever there are people who are not true worshipers of God, of absolute necessity. Isaiah 49, six, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Don't you love that? It, it, salvation is going to the nations. Why? Because as our text just said, it's too small a thing for Jesus to be the God of just one nation. <laughs> Jesus' worth is too great. God's glory is too precious to be limited to just one group of people, right? It's got to go everywhere. God is on his mission to bring himself glory from all the nations, all nations. He is worthy to be worshiped by all nations. And since God is not content to receive worship from only one people group, should we be content if God is worshiped by only one person or one people group? Since God is worthy to receive worship from all humanity, how can we be complacent, right? How can we be complacent? Um, reminded of, of one of John Piper's famous, very sound quotes uh, from his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, quote, evangelism is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not evangelism, because God is ultimate, not man. Not man, end quote. God's mission in our evangelism is to glorify himself by transforming sinners into true worshipers, into true worshipers 
through the proclamation of the gospel. The glory, the praise, and worship of God is the passion of God's own heart. So it must be the fuel of the fire that burns in our bones. What we want most deeply from the depths of our souls is for God's name to be honored and his glory to be treasured. We are eager, therefore, (laughs) to lay down our lives in sacrificial service to make that happen. Christ deserves the world's praise. We do evangelism to turn people into worshipers of the God who is worthy of all worship for his worship is our greatest joy. Is it not? Is it not? God's passion for his glory grounds his purpose and motivation for evangelism. What ought to be the believer's motivation for evangelism? That brings us to point two, the motivation. What's our motivation here? The motivation, the believers are motivated by love for God. Letter A, if we love God, we will obey him. We will obey him. You're familiar with Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So number one, love for God expresses itself in obedience of which evangelism is a part. Love for God expresses itself in obedience of which evangelism is a part. If love for God is the great and foremost commandment, that means it is at the very core of what it means to be in a saving relationship with him, right? I mean, the apostles speak of love for Christ as synonymous with being a Christian. Romans 8, 28, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, Ephesians 6, 24, it goes on. And, and love for the Lord our God is the spring from which all obedience flows. This is why it's one of the first questions I, I ask someone when they are doubting their assurance of their salvation. One of the first questions I always ask him is, what is your ultimate desire? Who is your ultimate love? Because obedience equals love. John 14, 15 and 14, 23. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. If love for God is the motivating factor of our obedience. It is necessary that we understand the nature of that love and cultivate it in our own souls. So we ask ourselves, we stop, we pause here just real quickly and ask ourselves, do I love God? (coughs) Excuse me. And that might sound like a simple uh, question. Do I delight in God? We have to ask these questions. Because 1 John 5, 3 says, (coughs) for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. True biblical love for God will be demonstrated in patterns of obedience to Christ's commands. Churches are filled with people who call themselves Christians yet are indifferent to his commands but Christ could not have said more clearly that the evidence of salvation is an obedient life. 
John 14, 23, James 2, faith and works go together. His command to evangelize could not be any clearer in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. And you know, it's interesting too, we, we, we see the pattern of this command, uh, we see the pattern really of obedience. Pardon? Yes, thank, thank you, thank you, Drew. <laughs> I should take a sip of that. We see the, the pattern of this obedience exemplified in Christ and the prophets and the apostles all throughout the scriptures in accordance with the Great Commission. So there are no exceptions, no exceptions for timid personalities or spiritual immaturity, nor is there a, a retirement age for the proclamation of the gospel. There is only a clear command that requires believers, that requires believers to put the name of Christ on display. There's so there's really no excuses for disobedience, only magnificent reason for obedience. We must be faithful to proclaim the gospel, whether coworkers, secular environment, or to our own unbelieving children in our own home. Our motivation comes from understanding evangelism as obedience and understanding obedience as an expression of the deep love we have for God, our Savior. Right? He's our king, our gracious king. We are his ambassadors. We obey him and we take his word forth. Why? Because it's by the very same gospel that we have been saved. How could we keep it to ourselves? How could we? Number two, love for God expresses itself in love towards others. This would naturally flow, right? Love for God expresses itself in love towards others. After saying that love for God is the great and foremost commandment, Jesus went on to say, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So true believers are characterized by sacrificial love. And this type of love will selflessly and compassionately proclaim the good news that Christ laid down his life on behalf of sinners. For if we love God, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. Every interaction with unbelievers must be characterized by a gentle, kind, compassionate, meek love, further defined even in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, 8, this love for God not only motivates us to evangelize, but characterizes every interaction with unbelievers. Try not to forget that as well as you're driving down 35, okay? Um, this genuine love was exemplified by Christ, right? See him towards the paralytic, woman at the well, man who was born blind, we could go on all day. And the apostle refers to confronting sinners with gentleness and meekness in 2 Corinthians 10.1, Colossians 3.12, 1 Thessalonians 2.7, 2 Timothy 2.25, and Romans 2.4 says, chapter two, verse four, that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God has led us to saving repentance. So Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, that even if you present the most eloquent message, the most articulate message, but do not have, what? Love, 
You are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And that brings us to B. If, if we obey him, we will glorify him. That's what we want, right? If we obey him, we will glorify him. Those who are redeemed will glorify God as they pursue holiness. They'll proclaim the gospel and display the person and work of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.15, for all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. <laughs> Paul's statement, <coughs> excuse me, Paul's statement is one of self-sacrificial as he was constantly on the brink of death, right? Yet he continued to deliver the gospel. So as people hear the truth and are saved, other voices are added to the chorus of praise to God, right? And simply put, leading others to Christ multiplies the praise and glory of our Savior. And that's one sweet truth for us this morning. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine in this dark world and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Philippians 2, 9 to 11, uh, towards the end, why? Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is glorified as we obediently proclaim the gospel of Christ. While only God can bring a sinner to repentance, we are responsible to make the message clear and understandable at the very same time. And it's amazing how the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility go hand in glove there. We worship God by proclaiming his word with clarity. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did with you. So when his word is given exposure, when people hear it and are saved, God is glorified. And that's what the Christian wants. We glorify God by evangelism, not only because evangelism is an act of obedience, but also because in evangelism, we tell the world what great things God has done for the salvation of sinners. God is glorified when his mighty works of grace are made known. Just like how in a few moments, we are going to hear six testimonies of God's saving mercy and grace in the lives of these folks of whose testimonies we will hear. It's not so much their testimonies, but it is their testimonies of God's grace and his saving work through the gospel in their lives, which we'll hear today. So if love for God and a desire to obey Christ do not motivate you to evangelize, then there's three things we gotta look at here just briefly. Number one, you may have a greater fear of man than of God. You might have a greater fear of man than of God. Perhaps you are afraid of being rejected by man or lack confidence in God's ability to humble a, a sinner's heart. Just remember how you were saved, if that's what you're struggling with. Just remember. 
So you might have a greater fear of man than of God. Number two, may not be applying God's word. May not be applying God's word. And when you read, when, when, when you and I read and, and do not apply God's word, our hearts become indifferent toward the need to obey Christ's commands, right? We choose to neglect the commands that are inconvenient or make us feel uncomfortable, right? And number three, it might be because you need to examine your own salvation. Might need to examine your own salvation. Maybe obeying this privilege of evangelism is impossible for you because you're not a believer. You do not really believe the gospel and do not know Christ as Lord and Savior. This is why week after week and communion after communion, it, we are reminded by 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. So, so those could be some possible reasons why um, if a love for God and desire to obey Christ don't motivate you to evangelize, could be one of those three. But if our motivation is to glorify God through obeying his commands to evangelize, then it follows that we must proclaim a, again, a God-centered message, a God-centered message. And that brings us to number three, the message. The God-centered message presentation emphasizes God's glory and man's sinfulness. The gospel is the good news that God has acted to restore sinners to himself by providing forgiveness of sins and salvation from eternal punishment through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The gospel, therefore, because of that truth, is confrontational, right? It is. It, it calls sinners to repentance. It calls unbelievers to turn from their own efforts of salvation and to submit to Christ's lordship, right? This is never been a popular message, okay? Go f as far back in your Bibles as you can, it's never been a popular message. Paul, Peter, James, Stephen, and many others were martyred for preaching it, right? Still, there is salvation in no one else, so we continue to proclaim his gospel message. The gospel focuses on the person and work of Christ. It reveals the exclusive means of reconciliation provided through Christ's salvific work, forgiveness of sin, and eternal hope of heaven. However, these blessings result from the Holy Spirit's work in bringing man to repent. And so, sadly, people proclaim a, a different gospel, Galatians 1, right? This deceptive message promises to meet uh, felt needs in exchange for a, a minimal commitment to Christ. And our market-driven uh, culture, in order to appeal to the, the masses, has produced nothing less than a, a man-centered message. And this false gospel message has subtly changed the, the contents and requirements to make them palatable and appealing to unbelievers. And this man-centered message may contain some biblical truth, right? But those biblical truths are distorted and the error comes when, especially when biblical truths are given out of context. That's exactly what the adversary uses in the world today. Just see 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4 on that one. 
However, the true gospel, as we know, is distinct. So we see a couple differences here. Letter A, the God-centered message proclaims God's holiness. It proclaims God's holiness. The, the, the vogue today is to bring God to a human level and redefine him as tolerant, passive figure who, who withholds judgment as long as the intentions are honorable, right? It kind of reminds me of what Martin Luther would say over and over again to even his people. Your thoughts, quote unquote, your thoughts of God are too human. They're too human. And this is opposite of the biblical description of God's holiness. Because he is holy, he will punish sin. Psalm 50 verse four, Romans 6, 23, and so forth. Yet his love provides the only means of salvation and forgiveness of sin. Letter B, the God-centered message reveals man's sinful condition. The God-centered message reveals man's sinful condition. A man-centered gospel message treats it as a weakness or tendency, a lateral offense done against another human. It fails to explain sin as an offense to a holy God, Psalm 51 verse four. Often it leads one to assume that man, though guilty of sin, has a basically good intent. This is not the condition of man described in scripture. I don't know about you. Isaiah 64, six, right? Man's righteousness is like filthy rags. Jeremiah 17, nine, heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Desperately sick. Romans three, there's none righteous. No, not one. How do we get past that? How do we do that? Everyone is a sinner in a rebellion against God. No matter how moral, kind, or loving one appears to be, unbelievers are hopelessly lost in their sin. Because all we do is tainted with sin, we cannot save ourselves from its eternal consequences any more than a criminal can determine his own penalty. This brings us to letter C, the God-centered message declares Christ as Savior and Lord. Christ as Savior and Lord. As Savior, Christ lived a sinless human life, right? Paid the penalty of sin on the cross, conquered sin and death by his resurrection. As Lord, he is ruler over every aspect of life and every dynamic of creation. His rule as Lord cannot be separated as his role as Savior. They both are true. They go hand in hand. And that brings up the, the, Lord's, the Lordship salvation debate, which to this very day is a fight. A man-centered gospel fails to connect Christ's authority to every aspect of life. Some people think they can accept Christ as savior, you know, securing their salvation, their spot in heaven, and later on make him Lord. Now, then I'll submit to his commands. You know, when I'm older and retired and it's a little bit easier to perhaps, but it never will be, by the way. They mistakenly believe that Christ can merely be added to their current lifestyle without turning from sin. This brings us to D, letter D. The God-centered message calls sinners to repent and believe in Christ. 
And there are two kinds of repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 11. The first kind of repentance is a worldly repentance in which there are, it comes with feelings of embarrassment from being caught or with thoughts of regret over the consequences of one's actions. And that type of repentance leads only to death, 2 Corinthians 7 says. It does not result in forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, eternal life. And then there is godly repentance. Godly repentance. And this, this is genuine repentance. This is, this is repentance that makes first... Peter 3.18 sound so sweet to us, to the true believer. This is so sweet. Listen to 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. You're brought to God. When you were, Romans 5, enemy of God. And you, at the same time, we're stiff-arming him. You have now been brought to God. This is genuine repentance. This, and this genuine repentance is motivated, what's it look like? By a solemn and urgent turning from sin. It is a response of submission to God, resulting in forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to God, and true eternal life. Only the Holy Spirit has enabled an unbeliever to understand his desperate need for salvation through Jesus Christ. The unbeliever must respond in genuine repentance. And later we'll discuss in detail the two dynamics of repentance, turning from sin and, and submitting to Christ. But this brings us to letter E. The God-centered message proclaims God himself as the great end of the gospel. God himself as the great end of the gospel. Many, many Bible-believing, uh, theologically sound, conservative Christians conclude their presentation of the gospel at that point. Uh, but having explained how humanity can escape judgment by having their sins forgiven in Christ, along with the essential nature of repentance, many believe the gospel conversation is then over. However, this may unintentionally leave the impression that the ultimate goal of the gospel is man <laughs> and his deliverance from the, the penalty of sin. But scripture reveals a more ultimate commitment in God and a more ultimate joy for redeemed sinners. So brings us to point one, God's chief end in salvation is his own glory. Again, his own glory. We see this in Isaiah 43, 25. My sake, 1 John 2, 12, for his name's sake. Ephesians 1 again, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Ephesians 2, 47, to show surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. It's all about his glory. God is not man-centered. God is God-centered. The great motivating force behind God's love for sinners demonstrated in the gospel is his delight in displaying his own glory. He means to receive the worship he is worthy of from sinners 
like you and me. Therefore, he must, as Titus 2.14 says, purify for himself a people for his own possession. His own possession. How? By paying for their sins and providing them with perfect righteousness. This God-centeredness must shape our understanding of the gospel and our evangelism. It must, it must. It's for his own glory. Number two, the sinner's greatest benefit in salvation, (laughs) it just builds its case, right? Is God himself. God himself. The greatest news of the gospel is that sinners may be fully reconciled to God and enjoy his glory. Enjoy his glory. In fact, scripture defines spiritual death as blindness to the glory of Christ. That's that's being an unbeliever. You're blind to the glory of Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 again. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. What is eternal life? What is eternal life? John 17, three, I love this. Beginning of Jesus's high priestly prayer. What is eternal life? Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. (laughs) 2 Thessalonians 2.14, it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? God himself is the ultimate good promised in the gospel. If we do not see in Savior the greatness, the greatest good above all others and in all others, we do not yet know why the good news It's truly good. So, just a quick review. We've seen the mission for God is to bring himself glory by transforming sinners into true worshipers through the proclamation of the gospel. We've seen the motivation that is to glorify God through obeying his commands. We've seen the message is God-centered, calling unbelievers to repent and follow Christ for the glory of God that brings us to the method, the method. We evangelize with a transformed lifestyle and a biblical presentation. They go hand in hand. A transformed lifestyle and a biblical presentation. So that would be letter A. We need to live a transformed life. Romans 12, one to two. Therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And by the way, keeping in mind, the methods may change, they may change slightly, but the message cannot change. We must continue to be transformed by the renewing of our minds by daily meditating on the word. The Holy Spirit works through the word implanted in our conscience, Psalm 119, nine to 11. And to to help us set our minds on things above, Colossians three, and to help us focus on that which is true, 
noble, just, pure, lovely, and of good repute. The truth of the matter is that when you spend your time speaking the gospel to unbelievers, everything you do and say, and I mean everything, everything you do and say is representative of the Lord Jesus and of Christians in general as his, as his followers. What you communicate about yourself is what you communicate about Christ, right? Because we are his image bearers. The true believer desires to represent Christ in the most accurate way possible. We must be diligent to live a transformed life of holiness, of holiness. This, this extends to our demeanor, our tone of voice. We should not be expressionless or devoid of enthusiasm when we evangelize as if we are mindlessly and heartlessly repeating a script because we fear punishment for not doing so. Neither should we come off as harsh or rigid or annoyed, remembering that the Lord's servant must be patient with all, 2 Timothy 2.25. Oh man, how guilty of that I've been with some of our Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who have, who have been in our neighborhoods. We must cultivate a demeanor that is warm, pleasant, and welcoming. After all, because of what Christ has done, Christians, more than all people, have reason, right, to rejoice and be glad. So, just for a moment, what is your influence at home, at work, in your neighborhood? The most eloquent and fluent gospel presentation is muted and sometimes nullified if Unbelievers know you by the patterns of sin in your life. At temper, gossip, gossip, lust, for example. Or if the message is not delivered with, with love, as, as we discussed earlier. Are we doers of the word? Are we doers? Is our, is our life characterized by good works that reflect the glory of God? The consistent example of a changed life is compelling proof of salvation, is it not? Is it not? I remember one, one uh, German philosopher, I forget what his name was, but very agnostic and he said, show me your transformed life and then maybe I'll believe in your savior. Letter B, maybe a, how about ma maintaining a, a lifestyle of prayer? Maintain a lifestyle of prayer as you pray we ask God to help us find opportunities to present the gospel, as well as to give you wisdom and courage. But above all, pray that God would be glorified through your obedience in giving his message to needy people. First Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Colossians 4, three to four, pray, praying at all times, at all times. Romans 10.1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. And by the way, just as a side note, be careful what you pray. Because <laughs> if you're praying for opportunities to proclaim the gospel, they're gonna come at you. <laughs> it's gonna come, it's gonna be there. And our mission field though begins at home and with our workers, coworkers, our neighbors, our parents and others. And our first priority is to those the Lord has placed in our lives. And the question is, are you and I praying for the salvation of unbelievers.
around us? Are we looking for opportunities to present the gospel? By the way, and even on that note, we don't have to look far, right? We don't have to look far. Let her see. Present the gospel with wisdom and innocence. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, he used two analogies in prescribing uh, the demeanor of his disciples to be in evangelism. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. As the most harmless and gentle of birds, doves represent being pure or innocent, another characteristic of faithful disciple of Christ. Being true to God's word and uncompromising in proclaiming the gospel does not require and should never include being abrasive, coarse, inconsiderate, belligerent, blatant, or blunt. Letter D, we need to rely on scripture, lastly. Rely on scripture as the only authority. The only authority. Scripture is the authority. Present the gospel, not your experience or opinions. The use of your testimony is powerful when you detail the work of Christ in your life, which we're gonna hear in a moment, but your testimony is not the gospel. We must remember that. We must remember, we must put Christ on display, not to highlight our past wickedness or, or accomplishments, but to proclaim the grace and mercy of God in his saving work alone. We want to avoid also manipulating emotions to affect conviction and generate uh, agreement with the gospel. Biblical evangelism must rely on the Holy Spirit to convict the conscience. We must remember that salvation is entirely a work of God, but he uses us, weak vessels. And therefore, we must study the Bible to be workmen who need not be ashamed, right? Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is what the word of God does. This is what the gospel does, not what you and I do, not what we do. And it circles all back around to his glory, his glory alone. So in conclusion, as we wrap things up, <laughs> do you love people? Do we love people? Are you concerned about their eternal destiny? I don't know about you, but man, there's been, there have been days, there have been weeks where I've gone by and I've had zero concern. Zero concern. Because life is about me. In my little fleeting glory moments. Are you concerned about their eternal destiny? I'm reminded of what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said on this, on this note. By the way, he believed fully in the sovereignty of God and salvation, and he also believed fully in what the scriptures tell us to do, which is for, to proclaim the gospel, to tell others to be saved, and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn from their sins. Listen to what he said in being concerned about the eternal destiny of those we come face to face with. He said, quote, they may be running hard to hell, 
but not without our arms wrapped about their ankles. Does that sound like me? <laughs> Does that sound like you? The gospel message is a confrontation that takes place in a loving, gentle manner. Be flexible. We need to be flexible. We need to be sensitive in the manner in which we evangelize, knowing that no single method will ever fit every single circumstance, right? And sometimes you will need to grieve. You will need to grieve with one who is hurting or help another through a difficult season. And whatever the case, the passion to evangelize must flow through our veins and we will be demonstrating in putting forth Christ, Christ's likeness in a lost and dying world, all for what purpose? To the glory of God, our Savior alone. So with this, let me, let me pray for us and then give us a couple heads up on the, the homework that we're about to have this week, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this great salvation which you call us your children. I do pray that we would be energized by your spirit, by the, the truth of your word, the truth of your love that has been demonstrated towards us, Lord. Lord, may we demonstrate it in our, in lip and life, Lord, to the lost around us, remembering who we once were and how we have been saved by the gospel, Lord Jesus, by you alone. Help us to be faithful, to leave the results to you, knowing that some plant, some water, but you grant the increase to the glory of your name. And we do ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in our evangelism. Help us to be faithful to the Great Commission, Lord, to know your grace, to know your mercy, and to proclaim it, that you would be exalted. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things and commit all to your honor. Amen.